Hi, this is Bill Miller, author of The Ricky CEO, You Can't Make This Stuff Up. And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Bill Miller. Bill Miller helps aspiring CEOs and leaders as an executive advisor, mentor, and coach. Over the past 30 years, he's served in senior management roles ranging from startups to multi-billion dollar operations. He's led marketing, operations, product management, business development, and strategic partnerships. Bill lives in Bristol, Connecticut, and is here to talk about his book, The Rookie CEO. You can't make this stuff up. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Bill. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Tell me, when you were growing up, Bill, who's someone who influenced or inspired you. For me, it was my parents, but I'll focus on my father. My father was a business owner and he worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week. He taught me the value of hard work and the payoff for that hard work. There was one other thing that really came out of that. That is that you help people who need help when you can help. My grandfather owned a small business before my father did. And it was a little convenience store before the days of 7-Eleven. A lot of the people didn't have money when they needed groceries. And so my father would offer them credit it. Just write it down on, I don't know if you remember the old cigarette cartons, but he used to break those up because people, all those people smoked back then. And he would write 53 cents or dollar fifty-three or whatever it was. He'd write that down. He'd clip it up onto a nail behind the cash register. And when they get their checks, they would come and pay him. They were always loyal to my father and his store. And that was a learning yeah. that I never forgot. That's important and impressive that your father was able to share that with you. Did you spend a lot of time in the store growing up stacking shelves? <laughs> oh man, I was the stock boy. As my father got older, he couldn't go up and down the stairs. Inventory was in the basement in this small store upstairs. But I helped him from the time I was a kid. I used to go in his truck to the markets in Boston where I grew up. I would do the heavy lifting for him when I was a teenager. Finally, I realized that I did not want to own a retail business and decided I was going to go into technology. And at one point in time, I finally parted ways with my father's business. But I did grow up there, work there. That's terrific. Tell me, when you were starting out in technology, you probably had early jobs with leading teams as a manager, and you went on to serve in executive function roles. Can you remember a time early in your career when that example of hard work and helping people enabled you to make a decision based on your father's influence and based upon his example that allowed you to make a choice that you probably wouldn't have made if your father hadn't had that influence in your life? I think back to one of my early jobs was Universal Studios in California. I was a manager of their data operation center for a short period at a time. The guy who I replaced was still there for one week and he was leaving from Universal to go to Disney. And there was a lot of people who loved this guy. They just couldn't figure out what they were going to do. So one guy said, I'm going to get fired now. I can't afford to pay my rent and all this other stuff. I said, look, you're not going to get fired. I I don't even know you. Don't worry about it. I sat down the way my father used to sit down with me. I just said, just don't worry about it. Step by step. That's where I learned the whole step by step 
approach. Before I became a manager, I didn't have a clue, to be truthful, how to manage or help people, except for what my father taught me. So that's all I had grasped when I first took over this job. And I was lucky to get that job. It was a walk-in when I moved to California with a friend of mine, and I didn't have a job. I left Honeywell and went there, but I didn't have a job. So I ended up stepping into something and managing for the first time, really. It was interesting, but I did apply my father's principles. That's terrific. Bill, what did it take to be a CEO? A lot of people will start a business in a spare bedroom and call themselves a CEO. Other people have actual CEO responsibilities with a large team that they're managing, operations, different plants, large customer base. At what point does somebody legitimately get to claim that they're an acting CEO? In corporations, the CEO is the head honcho. But in life, on your way there, you really are the CEO of your own life. Every decision you make, the whole concept of your path to CEO, which builds your foundation, the philosophies that you build and you create over your lifetime, then the leadership styles when you have to start managing people, all of those are developed over time. And that can anybody, I really believe anybody can be a CEO. Now, whether you'll be a successful CEO or a good CEO, that remains to be seen for everyone. But when you take over a company and you are the head honcho and it says on your employment contract that you're a CEO, then you're a real CEO. Let me go back and and just lay out the foundation that you have in your book, The Rookie CEO. You say that there are four cornerstones that make up your CEO style. And it's your path to CEO, meaning the employment history you have up to that point and how you've learned. It's your philosophy in different key areas. It's the culture that you create and also your communication style. Talk about which of those is the one that most people think is the most important and which is the one that actually makes the biggest difference from your experience with observing and working for many CEOs. What a great question. I think everybody, everybody would mean majority, 90% maybe of people who work in an organization for a CEO and have opinions and leave their reviews on Indeed or Glassdoor, look at leadership style. Yes, leadership style is important, but I believe the foundation that you have created in your path to CEO, which build your philosophy, those are your values and your principles. That's the most important. If you have philosophies that you already know you lie and cheat on your way through and you have no integrity that about yourself, then you better do some work before you develop your leadership styles because it's the philosophy, in my opinion, that drives the next level of success. Philosophies lead to leadership styles. The philosophy and the leadership styles drive the culture. That's so important for people to recognize that it's your philosophy, which is really the breakdown of that is your values and your experiences Mm -hmm. that you subscribe to and self-awareness. Are you aware that these are the things you value? And as a result of those values, you make decisions a certain way. You favor different types of interactions, whether they're confrontational or more collaborative. This all plays a big role in the type of culture that you build. These are interdependent pillars, not siloed. Uh, I came up with this whole concept while writing the book, I never thought of it as much until I started doing the mind mapping of all the different things for these nine rookie CEOs that I had worked for. I was trying to find the common denominators of each one because they all come from different backgrounds. Although some of them might come from general managers or some of them might come from engineering, there's a core that they bring. But unless they were a COO and really the most well-rounded of the nine rookies was a CEO at a public company. So he knew how to work with all the different groups. But everybody else who ran a function, they didn't understand what motivated and inspired the other groups. As you know, my favorite story in the book is about a former sales VP who became a CEO and didn't understand that money did not motivate engineering. That's a really important 
point to bring out. Talk about what happened there as he tried to apply that and got the information that it wasn't working. Tom was a former VP at a very large company that a lot of us know. Tom had been promoted from the VP to the CEO fairly quickly. This company was venture funded. The two founders were engineers. So the VP of engineering and the CTO were really the key creators of all the technology. When they told us that there was going to be a six to 12 month delay because there was chips involved, he didn't understand what that meant. It was about 12 engineers. He said to me, look, I want to get a wheelbarrow and roll $100,000 in cash into the conference room. So we can tell these guys they can split this cash if they can deliver this date, which would allow us to still hit the beta customers without having to go back and resell all the accounts. I said, I don't think that's a good idea, Tom. If you do that, what you're going to do is raise the bar of how they think of you. And besides, most of these people are already millionaires. They don't care about $100,000. That's a drop in a bucket. They care about solving the problem. He still didn't really understand the ramifications of that. He loved his wheelbarrow. He liked that idea. Because he was driven by money. Sales driven by money. Their comp plans, their commissions, their kickers, that was what drives them. And you know that better than anybody. I told them not to do it. I said, it's my best advice. Don't do it. I was vice president of marketing and product management. He's called the two founders. And I can still see it as clear as day. They're sitting in the back right of the table and Tom is at the top and Bill is on the left. And he says, this is what I want to do. If they hit this state, we'll give them the 100,000. If they hit this state, we'll give them 75. And if they hit this state, we'll give them 50. The two guys looked at each other. They had worked together at previous startups and at a major Silicon Valley company. They looked at Tom and they said, Tom, you don't trust us. You don't believe us. That thing just fell apart. It took another few months, but that was the beginning of his downfall because he didn't take the time, even though he had some advice. Now, I wasn't a coach. I was just a VP, but he didn't think it through that I might have a point. So he moved forward with it. In the meantime, before the time he told me in the meeting with the two co-founders, I had a meeting with HR and we called the local police because I had said, if we're going to bring $100,000 in here, we want to have cops in this building because strange things happen when there's cash around. And the local police laughed in Mountain View. They laughed and they said, you know what? If people find out you're going to be doing that, they'll be there with automatic weapons. And they do that for $500, let alone $100,000. It was a, a serious mistake. It's my favorite story. I'm still friends with Tom. We talk on the phone. He's a great guy. He didn't mean badly. No, I get that. My stomach also sank when I read that story and how <laughs> he was so tied to that idea. He was so excited by it. I knew people who I can imagine taking on just like a dog after a bone and they just latch onto it and hold onto it so tightly. You gave him advice and I'm sure as he was giving the pitch to the two founders that he could see that their faces were not receptive. Yeah. So he probably just pushed harder. At the end, that really was the break where it started the downfall. What yeah. are some of the lessons to extract from that? When you realize that you have a gap in your understanding, what can someone who's a rookie CEO start to do to gain better perspective before going wider with this type of exploration? My recommendations in the book and some of the webinar I just recently did for CEOs in a peer group is first and foremost, when you become the boss, a CEO, even an executive, but certainly CEO, is you need to meet with each group individually and find out 
know what motivates them. You come from a function. If you come from engineering, engineering cares about problem solving because you hire people who like to solve problems. We're in finance and there's very, there's what, only 10, 12, 13% of people that move from finance CFO into CEO. They only care about money. They care about the P&L, which is important, but they don't care about what motivates marketing or sales or engineering. You have to learn that. One of my most important things is understand what motivates and inspires each function in the group. That's my recommendation. Even for the aspiring CEOs or aspiring leaders, there's a lot of VPs and CXOs who run large organizations. Understand what drives the subgroup. I think it's important to not take the rule of thumb that we rely on and say, oh, if they're in finance, they really care about money or cost control. Because I think when you say money, some people listening to this might think that it's personal enrichment when my experience is, is that they really care about cost control and making sure that they're able to run their reports on time and, and that people are reporting in to give them the data that they need in order to establish all their reports. That's exactly right. Cost control, I talk about in the book, cost control comes under two different things. There's a philosophy of how you're going to manage a budget. That's a philosophy that every individual individual one of us have. A lot of your listeners probably don't even balance their checkbook. They don't look. They know there's plenty of money in there. They don't even look. Seriously. And they learn that. And when they get to be the CEO and they're responsible for the company budget and they need a controller or CFO, whatever it is, they let that person worry about it. Then they actually believe everything that person says. And I've seen that fail because there's a discussion in the book like that. If someone has the ambition to become a CEO and they're currently working in a senior leadership capacity, maybe they're a vice president, maybe they're a general manager, and they want to be a CEO either of this company or of a similar company, what are some ways that they can assess and prepare themselves for this? From your experience, maybe you share an example of someone who you worked with that had that ambition and wanted to take the top seat. A friend of mine, Mike, is a former VP of support, and he had done a lot of work in trying to be a collaborative leader. He worked with customers every day. He worked with all the customer problems, and he also ran customer success. He wanted to be a CEO, not in the particular company we were in a different company. So he did ask me, we used to talk every day. He asked me, what would you do to prepare yourself? That's always been in the back of my mind. I said, you're already a collaborative guy, but with your customers in your team, you need to go outside of your office and talk to every VP and direct in the company. It was only a 60 person company at the time that we were in. So I said, just talk to everybody. You're going to find out what drives product management, what drives sales, what drives marketing. How can you better support them? When you meet with them, you put it in that framework. How can my group support you better? Is there anything I can do to help you? Even though you're doing fact-finding for your personal career, A, you're going to learn what motivates and drives and inspires every one of those functions. And it was a small enough company that he could do that. It took him a few years, but he is now the president and CEO of a company. The ending he wanted. He got the end result and desired outcome. He's told me that talk one day helped him. A lot of people are not collaborative and they can still be promoted because they're so good at what they do. They get promoted from manager to director to senior director to VP, whatever, and they position themselves, but they're good at their role in their function. Now, all of a sudden, if they do find themselves in that top job, it's not that easy because every one of those functions have expertise that you don't have. The combination that I like about that story is that Mike had both the ambition to be a CEO and the curiosity, starting with the curiosity to ask you, what would you do? Then he took action based upon your suggestion. I think that he had a very open mindset and was willing to learn and it led to the outcome that he desired. I'm so happy that came full circle because I think people can learn a lot. Having curiosity and not thinking at all because that could often backfire. That's 
an interesting point you just said, because so many CEOs think they know it all. They're not the smartest guy in the room. In fact, if you are the smartest guy in the room, then you have two problems. One, you're in the wrong room, and two, you have the wrong people. I just recently started putting out a CEO tip every Friday on LinkedIn, just a one-liner. I just posted that one actually last Friday and got a few comments. Don't be the smartest guy. Another issue that's difficult, I'm sure, is when people who are part of a peer group and they have five to 10 colleagues who are all senior directors or VPs, and that person has to ascend. It's like the first time you're made a manager and have to lead people who you thought were all your buddies. Can you talk about what some of the difficulties that you have to navigate once you get elevated into the role of CEO at the same company where you served with your peers at the vice president level? Certainly, when I first got promoted to a VP, I had been a director. I did let it to my head in the beginning. We all have egos of certain sizes, and I let my ego get in the way. I almost got in trouble with sales. I became a VP of a marketing and product management team of about a $300 million company. And I was really good at what I did. I knew I was. That's why I got the promotion. But the fact is, once I got the promotion, I got too big for my britches with other VPs. So I had to learn how to meet with them individually, very much what I told Mike. I had to meet with these people individually, especially the ones that I think might have called me lunatic at one point, and tell them where I was coming from, apologize, and then understand in detail what they're looking from me, what I can expect from them. That was important. That's one of the first things I think you need to do when you're promoting whether it's to a manager, director, a VP, or CEO in the same company. Now, Mike has fed some of that back to me already and told me how hard it was for him to be promoted first to president from COO, where he had been the operations guy, making sure that everything was smooth across all functions. So he was certainly prepared for the president and CEO, but it was like tiptoeing through the tulips is how he described it to me. It's very sensitive because other people might have wanted that. Other people might have thought they were suited for it. Now, I've been hired into a company as a VP, and I inherited a team that had three, four people on it that wanted that job. That was difficult. The thing that he did that made it easier, in addition to listening and having those conversations with people. He'll Mm -hmm. make his own decision, but he made sure that wherever the decision lied, if it was in a specific function or if it was cross-company, he had input from people, then he made his decision. And he did it rapidly. He can do it in a 15-minute stand-up or call or today video call And you have to be video so that you can see the facial expressions. It's all you have now if you're not in the office. But that's what he did. His company's all remote, his current company that he's leading. So it's all on video. But at the end of the day, you get input. You tell people what you're thinking, get their input, and you get to make the final decision. You can do that pretty rapidly, but it's important to communicate and be honest. You got to be transparent to the people that you trust that's on your trusted A-team. Now, here's an issue that I've heard from other CEOs and leaders of small businesses. It seems that during the pandemic, people think that there's leeway to influence or go contrary after a decision's been made. Can you talk about maybe an example from one of the CEOs that you advise or coach about what it takes to make it clear that a decision's been made, that the point for discussion or alternatives has passed, that a decision really has been made, and that we're not going to discuss it until some future point, but we need to put all our resources now behind supporting the decision that's been made. Let me tell you about this company located here in Connecticut. They are in the technology space. The CEO is Linda. 
and the CTO is Jerry and their husband, wife. There are about 200 people in the company. Several are offshore and they have a business team in the US, which is sales, marketing, product management, and the CTO and the CEO both live here. They have had significant challenges with decisions that they make for the R&D side with the offshore people and with the business side as well because they're all remote. The only people who go into the office, I went into the office, so I saw was there. There's about six people will go in, but they only go in for meetings. Linda and Jerry, they're every day, but all of their meetings with the key people and decisions are made in video conferences. And they have had some challenges with the sales team laying out what they've just sold and the development team delivering. They need a process that allows the decision to be shared properly and documented. This is a problem, not just in this company, but other companies. The decisions from the CTO and the CEO and other senior leaders may be done on a whiteboard or a flip chart, not documented anywhere. Just suggestions that they are currently contemplating. But the idea of a wiki that has all the decisions that are currently made, you take it now from a whiteboard, you can even take a picture of the whiteboard, put it on a wiki, and then start to put some supporting things in there. Everybody offshore and onshore can see what the decisions were made, but they have had challenges with engineers thinking, oh, this is a cool project. I'm going to just add this little thing over here. Then sales has to go back and resell it. So they have a fundamental problem that I think more than just them have, because I've seen it before. But that's an an existing situation. In this particular company, Linda, the CEO, runs operations and Jerry the CTO runs sales and marketing and engineering. There is a different kind of an operation. It's really finance and buying and selling and the office management, that kind of stuff. The point of not being able to document and have visibility into their decisions is something that I think a lot of people are going to take away and reflect on as to whether their process has similar flaws and can be strengthened in that same way. Are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? I'll do my best. We started off and I asked you about someone who influenced you growing up and you talked about your dad. When you were a teenager, Bill, what's a song that you loved? California Girls by the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys were my favorite band. That was my favorite song. I think I played that thousands of times. It still is one of my favorites, actually. In the last six months or so, what's been a terrific $100 or so purchase that's brought you even more pleasure and satisfaction than you expected? Oh, that's a good one, too. My new mic. I bought a new Technica 2100X USB mic that I'm talking on right now. It has made such a difference in my audio. That's the feedback I've gotten from everybody that I've talked to online. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most personal pleasure or satisfaction? One of the little tidbits, the factoid about me is on American, I'm a million miler. It actually 1.5 my, million miles on my American count. I haven't used American much. I used to be on the road all the time. Now, the only time I travel is visiting family, which may be once a year, and much less than the last year for sure. I love to go to conferences and shows. I speak at them. I'm a panelist or a moderator. And uh, I have done one, but that's only one in a year in the last year. What have you done with the time you saved from travel? What's one way that you've invested that time? I wrote and published The Rookie CEO. You can't make this stuff up. I literally started writing that in April of 2020, and I published Uh, it in October of 2020. And everything has been about everything CEO related, blogging, my website, blogging, podcast, and writing more. I love to write. Bill, you have brought so many of your insights forward and been generous in sharing them with us today. So I want to thank you for your insights and 
and your experience that you've brought on my quest for the best. Thanks for having me. You're a, you're a pleasure to speak with. It's such a treat talking with you. And tell me, Bill, where can people go to find out more about you and your work online? Because I hear not only is there the book, but there's also an upcoming course. The easiest way is just go to my link tree. So it's linktr.ee, Beeline Bill, spelled out. Bill, we're going to link to your link tree as okay. well as all of your social media and places to buy your book online as well as your course. Bill Miller, author of The Rookie CEO, you can't make this stuff up. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you very much, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.